morning, everyone. I invite y'all to stand and worship with us. Hope y'all had a Merry Christmas. glad to be here this morning.
that's a sweet sound to your ears, God.
declare to you this morning, yes, I am a child of God. Yes, I am a child of God. I'm no longer a slave to fear. I am a child. grateful today that you are called a child of God, that for all that would believe him, to all that would place their faith and trust in him, to them he gave the right to be called children of God. And there's so much joy of being a part of God's family, of being one of his children, being brothers and sisters in Christ, and part of that joy is coming together and worshiping together and loving on one another. And so today is just a great day of joy. Hopefully you've been blessed this weekend celebrating Christmas with family and and hanging out together. And uh, we had a great time at our uh, Christmas Eve candlelight service. And we're going to have a great time today as we dig into God's Word in just a moment. But uh, I don't know about you, but my heart is just uh, overflowing this weekend because of God and what He has done and the freedom that we have in Him. And I'm so grateful for that. Let's go to him in prayer today. God, we thank you that through your son, Jesus Christ, that wonderful gift that you have given us through him, that we can be called the children of God. Thank you for offering us that relationship uh, with you, to be a part of your family, to be brothers and sisters together. And God, what a joy it is to hang out with our brothers and sisters in Christ and to worship and to celebrate. And God, we thank you for your presence that's here. We thank you for your arms that are wide open, ready to receive us. And God, that you love us. And God, we're just so grateful for all that you do for us. God, I pray now that as we prepare our hearts to receive what you have for us through your word today, that God, you would just help our ears to be open and our hearts to be ready to receive as you speak to us. And God, we know that as your word is shared, that your word will accomplish what you have set forth for it to accomplish today in each one of our lives. God, we love you and thank you for being here with us. Thank you for your presence that's always with us. In Christ's name that I pray, amen. How is everyone this morning? Everybody have a good Christmas? Awesome, awesome. So, I have something that I want to process with y'all this morning that's just on Christmas Eve. I had an epiphany, if you will. I had a realization that I had hit a milestone without even really realizing it. So, in between our Christmas Eve candlelight services, there was one of our sixth graders in the Momentum Ministry who came up to me, and we were having a conversation, just chatting it up. And then he asked me, Lance, what did you ask for for Christmas? And I was like, oh, what a great question. And then I remembered what I had asked my mom for for Christmas. So then I was like, okay, Wyatt, tell me one thing that you're not going to make fun of me 
whenever I tell you what I ask for for Christmas. I was like, no, never, Lance. I would never make fun of you. I was like, all right. So what I asked for was a John MacArthur New Testament commentary set. And I was all excited, smile on my face. And he was like, what is that? I was like, okay, why? All you have to know is that it's a bunch of books, okay? That I have officially become a youth pastor nerd. There it is. There's the milestone. And it snuck up on me, if I'm honest. So I have one question for y'all this morning. Kind of random, kind of simple. We're going somewhere with it. Who in here likes eggnog? Do we have any eggnog fans? A few of them. Other people just kind of furl their nose whenever they hear about eggnog. And I must confess, I must personally say that I am not an eggnog fan. That the one time that I've tried it is the only time that I've tried it. And I've ran far, far away. Now... Just to say, it may not be as bad as I'm making it up to be, but I can tell you what, lukewarm eggnog is the worst. That we had gotten it from the grocery store, right? That it rode around a little too long in the shopping cart. It went around in the SUV to make it back home. And at the end, my mom asked if I want to try some eggnog. I said, sure, pour some in a glass and give it a sip. And it was gross and lukewarm. I spit it out immediately. That I feel like if I would actually had drank some of that eggnog, it wouldn't have stayed in my stomach. I can tell you that much. So, knowing that it's probably rather atrocious, lukewarm, I was going to say it, we're going to continue that thread for a little bit to think about some other things that probably aren't as good as they could be or should be whenever they're lukewarm. So take meat for an example, that you have yourself, beef, chicken, pork. Whenever you stick it in the freezer, it's safe and good, Right? You're good, it's good to go, you can take it out and cook it whenever. Whenever it's hot, whenever you're cooking it up, you stick it in the oven, you can grill it, you can smoke it, what have you, it's delicious. Now, there's this in-between area. My brother-in-law can tell me best that he studied meat for a while now. In that temperature range, 40 and 140 degrees, that's the danger zone. That If you set that meat out on the counter to get lukewarm, you go back and forth all day long to just snack on it, to graze on it, God bless. You're going to be in for some trouble. You are in danger. Now, if you, you just wait, keep it overnight, and go back to it the next day, continue to eat it, man, you're in really, really big danger there. You should really watch out. I know we have some coffee fans in here. Who in here are our coffee drinkers? Okay. So hot coffee, a lot of people like their coffee hot. That's just fine and well good. I can personally say that I'm more on the other side of the spectrum. I like my coffee cold if it's an iced latte or a frappe or something like that. Even in the winter months where it's supposedly cold, I'll drink it. Now, in the in-between, this in-between is reserved for monsters that would willingly choose to drink lukewarm, tepid garbage in a cup that has just sat there all day long. Man, that's gross. I don't know why anyone would ever decide to inflict harm on them like that. So we think about some of the atrocities that come with lukewarmness. Things shouldn't be generally as they should be whenever they're lukewarm. And this is the gateway. This is the transition into what we are talking about this morning. We're going to be in Revelation chapter 3, verses 14 to 22, and we are going to be talking about a lukewarm Christian. Now, in case that hasn't been conveyed so far. Being lukewarm is not a good thing. Being a lukewarm Christian is not a compliment. Perhaps this is the truth, that no one is more miserable than a lukewarm Christian. So this is a quote by David Guzik. They, in speaking about lukewarm Christians, have too much of the world to be happy in Jesus 
yet too much of Jesus to be happy and content in a world. That practically speaking, these Christians have faith and name, but not action. That on a daily basis, day-to-day life, there's no power to day-to-day living, and you pretty much essentially have somewhere to go on Sunday morning. You have a Sunday morning itinerary. They are Christians that we often describe who have drifted away from Jesus, who have drifted away, who have backslidden. There's a few ways that we describe that. And perhaps we know a family member, perhaps ourselves at one season or another. Perhaps we have a friend that we could describe that had drifted away, that had become lukewarm. A lukewarm Christian often defends their lifestyles and preferences, even they know Jesus teaches something different. Jesus instructs something different. And if we're honest, this is a tension that you and I can't miss today, that this lukewarm brand of Christianity is what our culture is trying to lull us into, that being a Christian is fine and it's well as long as the love of Jesus is pretty much null and void, that there's no love that can fix, there's no love that transforms hearts, and ultimately, There's no power in that life to change. That stay as you are. We'll just have Jesus when it's convenient for us. We just want a convenient and easy Jesus. Here's a couple quotes by, I think, a guy with a beast of a name, J. Hampton Keithley. America has more churches per capita than any other country. Our currency reads, in God we trust. But according to recent statistics, There is very little difference between the lifestyles of Christians and non-Christians. The moral degeneracy of our nation and its attitudes, values, and beliefs is everywhere. The crime rate, substance abuse, divorce rate, abuse of women and children, the secularism, the rise of the cult, the New Age movement, and many, many other signs make it clear this country is in critical condition regardless of its Christian heritage and its many churches. And here's a shorter one by him, that we are the wealthiest nation in the world with more churches, more Bibles, more Christian literature, and more Christian schools than any other nation in the world. Yet, on many fronts, and by many accounts, we are losing the battle. So here's the truth. We just got done celebrating Christmas that we had read over the Christmas story, Christmas sermons. We had our Christmas Eve candlelight service. Jesus didn't come into this world to just be an accessory. That Jesus didn't come into the world to be convenient. And as Pastor Shane said last week, to just be put into a box and sent back up into the attic for next year. That no, Jesus, God incarnate, God in the flesh, came into this world, that baby born in Bethlehem, to change everything radically. That he himself, God himself, Alpha and Omega, everlasting Christ, came into our hearts, came into our lives, that we would be made whole, that he would transform us, and that nothing would stay the same. Are you hearing me this morning, church? That he came in to radically change us, to soften our hearts, there were once hearts of stone. He simply will not and cannot be an accessory of our lives. So before we read, it's important to note a couple of things about this letter that we're about to read to the church in Laodicea. So although written to the church in Laodicea, 
this letter is also meant for us, that written to the people during that time, but also written for God's people at all times that we could take something from, whether it's a warning, whether it's conviction, whether if it's just a challenge to walk deeper in our walk in faith in Christ, we have something to hear this morning. And second of all, we're going to hear in this passage that there is a part, there's a time where Jesus is knocking at the door. And often this passage is used to bring unbelievers to Jesus, to bring unbelievers to faith in Christ. And while that should be celebrated, and that's well, and that's great, that actually wasn't the original intent of this passage. That rather, this passage was written to professing believers in Jesus. That it was written to the sons and daughters, to those who profess faith in Christ. And here's the reality that we may be facing this morning. This is what Pastor Michael Kirby says. That here we are singing songs about him. That as we did this morning, we could be singing songs of praises about Jesus. Yet the reality that he very well may be at the front door knocking and saying, you've shut me out. I want to come in. I want to eat with you. I want to have fellowship with you. Yet you've shut me out. You have to let me back in. And that can be somewhat of a sobering reality to face, especially after Christmas, the day after Christmas. Merry Christmas, y'all. This is what we're looking forward to. So if you'll take your Bibles, we're in Revelation 3. I'll read it out for us, picking up in verse 14. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, the words of the Amen the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So, because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich in white garments that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is the word of the Lord. So as we begin, some background information to understand about the city of Laodicea during this time. This was a city around the time of the early church, whenever Christianity was just spreading outward from Jerusalem, Antioch, and the other hubs. Laodicea was very wealthy, very prosperous. That perhaps this story just kind of hammers that idea home. 65 AD, it was 25 to 30 years after Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection. There was a massive earthquake that hit the area of Laodicea and the surrounding region. 
and all the cities, including Laodicea, was decimated, reduced to rubble. And while the other cities took the help of the Roman imperial government, because they had jurisdiction over that area, they came and said, hey, we'll help you rebuild, we'll help you out. Laodicea said, nah, we're good. We got this covered. We can pull ourselves back up by our bootstraps. We don't need your help. And sure enough, they rebuilt that city back up from the rubble, back up from the ashes to be more glamorous than it was originally. Laodicea prided itself on three things. Number one, they prided themselves on their financial industry, their financial standing. Number two, they prided themselves on their textile industry that they produced this fine black wool that they made clothes out of. So during that time, they were Gucci brand, all right? Gucci came from Laodicea. But not only that, the clothes were distributed pretty much worldwide as far as worldwide gets during that time, and it was relatively cheap. So we were talking about Walmart Gucci. Kind of sounds like oxymoron, I know, but they were very well known for their clothes. And then third of all, their eye salve that helped reduce eye irritation. Now Laodicea had a critical Achilles heel that's important for us to understand the story that we're about to dive into as we go through, that Laodicea had a poor water supply that came through one single aqueduct. This aqueduct was like a pipe, and it was super easy to cut off, to block. So this meant that enemies, foreign nations, wanting to come and attack Laodicea had it easy just to cut off the water supply, and then the city was in shambles. They had already completely weakened the city. So Laodicea, naturally, knowing this weakness, were always willing to compromise. They were always willing to negotiate, and they were always accommodating of whatever enemy, whatever winds that blew in, they would be tossed back and forth, saying, yes, we just don't want to be attacked. Just don't hurt us. We see this, and we also have to look back at the biblical geography, if you will, that two different aqueducts fed into this one aqueduct that came to Laodicea. One came from Hierapolis, and it was hot, soothing, comforting water. That was like the spa. If you want to go to the spa, you're going to Hierapolis and going to chill in their hot springs. And then the other aqueduct that fed this one was from Colossae, and it was this cool, crisp water that was refreshing, and that's exactly what you'd want in a glass of water to quench your thirst. Now, these two combined makes what? Lukewarm water, lukewarm water, and not only that, coming all this way down the aqueduct, it had picked up all the contamination, all of the junk and the filth down the way, that it just pretty much this sludge that slid into town that was their drinking supply. Lukewarm, nasty, and gross. So as we see this, we step into verse 14, and we are introduced into who is speaking to us, who these words are coming from, and it's Jesus the amen himself. And we are familiar with amen. Amen, we used to close our prayers every single time we pray. And this is what amen means. It's perfect completion. So this is a tip of the hat to Jesus being the perfect completion of all of God's promises. This is what 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20 says. For all the promises of God find their yes in him. That is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. We also see Jesus described as a faithful and true witness. Now, you and I know a witness is someone who goes to court and gives their account of a crime or something that they witnessed, that they saw. Now, 
witness has a little bit more substance to the definition that we see here in the passage. That witness is defined to be a person who makes a solemn statement under oath concerning their beliefs resulting in their death. Did you hear it? Resulting in their death. And the beautiful part about this, remembering Jesus, where this letter came from, that he was a lamb who was slain for us. This is a reference to the cross, to what he accomplished, to what he did on that tree. And we see Jesus, the beginning of God's creation, that it's easy once more to look at the Bethlehem story, the baby in a manger, and just believe that Jesus came into existence then and there. That no, Jesus truly is the Son of God, God incarnate from everlasting to everlasting, who has always been and who always will be. This is what the Gospel of John opens up, saying, In the beginning was the Word, Jesus, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing that was made has been made. This is a beautiful way to begin, to be reminded of who Jesus is and who is writing these words, to listen up, pay attention. Christ himself has said these so after the introduction, Jesus is quick to uncover the lukewarmness of this church, the lukewarm works of a lukewarm Christian. So just as we saw in the beginning illustrations of the coffee, that it can either be hot or cold, in the very same way, both are acceptable, those are pleasing and good to God, that there is not this dichotomy, if you will, that's only hot is good because you're close to God and you're on fire for him, and cold, you're distant from him. It's not that, nor is it cold because you're chilling with God in the clouds and it's cool up there, or hot because you're on the highway going somewhere you shouldn't be going. That's not what this passage is displaying to us. Rather, we see that hot is comforting and soothing. And this is talking about the works of a Christian. This is speaking of how we can be comfort and soothing to the cold, lifeless world, to cold, lifeless people who desperately need Jesus. And in the same way, cold, that's refreshing and that can be restoring. And in the same way, we look around, it's easy to see on the news that the world is always inflamed, it's always aggravated, it's always irritated, there's anger, there's bitterness, there's resentment, there's division, spite. That's we, as God's people, go out into the world to be refreshment to be restoration, to be a cool drink of water to others as God uses us to help relieve the anguish, help relieve the inflammation. We see, but since the people are lukewarm, they are getting spit out. The, Luke, the Greek word for spit here, or excuse me, the word for spit that we read translates to vomit, as we see in this passage. So we have this dainty reading oftentimes that we believe and hear, but rather what the actual translation more closely is, man, I'm going to throw you up out of my gut. And that's not pretty. That's not pretty. Usually that's not something we'll hear here in church. But we see that's the truth, that this lukewarmness is not pleasing, nor is it honoring to Jesus. But there's something to acknowledge here that this scripture is not talking about our salvation in Jesus. To be reminded that our salvation is secure and safe in God's hands whenever we've believed in him. Whenever we've placed our faith in Jesus, it's safe and secure that he holds us. 
but rather this scripture is a call back to him, is a rebuke that is saying, turn back towards me, that you would be convicted, that you would repent, and that you would enter into fellowship. So in verse 17, notice that all the things in Laodicea, all the things that they're taking pride in and satisfied in and that they are propped up in their self-satisfaction, self-worth, are actually the things that are making them wretched and miserable. They think they're rich, but they're actually poor. They think they're prosperous, but they're actually a pitiful people. They think they've got top-notch, fancy eye salve that helps them see better that they sent out to the ends of the earth, but actually they are the ones who are blind. They think they're uptown in their Walmart Gucci threads, yet, but they're actually naked. They think they're self-sufficient, yet they're in desperate need. They need to be sitting up an SOS flare. They're a house of cards ready to fall in on itself. Now, while this is confusing, I bet the church in Laodicea was confused as well. But there's something to realize and to keep in mind that the words of Jesus here are speaking about a spiritual reality, not the things that we see and perceive, but a spiritual reality that among these people, there's a spiritual indifference and there's spiritual lukewarmness. That Jesus is speaking against an attitude that only relies on itself, that I got this covered. I don't need anyone or anything. Ultimately, we'll lead down to this path that if we're not careful, we'll say, I don't need you, God. I don't need you. I have this handled. The counsel from Jesus is very important in verse 18. We are instructed to buy from Jesus to get from Jesus what we actually need and deserve. Do we know that this morning, church, that everything we could possibly long for, everything we could possibly need comes from Christ's hand? That this is the very thing that we enjoy prosperity and we enjoy these things that God has freely given us. Yet do we give him thanks for those things? Do we realize at the end of the day that apart from him, we would have nothing that we're not entitled to what we work hard for and muster up the courage for. We're not entitled to it. That all things come from his hand. This is what Isaiah 55 verses 1 through 3 says. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money, and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread, and labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me, and eat what is good, and delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear, and come to me. Hear that your soul may live, and I will make with you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast, sure love for David." Do you see it? That he wants to give you eternal riches that can't be destroyed, can't be stolen, and cannot be taken away from you. A hope that is anchored strong and true away from the hands 
of enemies. That he wants to give you his purity and his righteousness. That it's not something that you come up with yourself, some sort of moral deism. That you think that you can be good enough. You can do the right things to make it to heaven. That no, Jesus just wants us a free gift to impart his righteousness, his robes of white that you had made, made clean in Christ's blood. It all comes from him, that we would lay ourselves down in humility, lay ourselves down with self-abandon and take up the better things that God has for us. That we're going to steal an old cliche that we often hear around the new year, out with the old and in with the new. Out with the old and in with the new. This message isn't out of cruelty. It isn't out of resentment. It's not out of bitterness or belittlement. This message is one of pure love, that this is what Christ is saying, is repent, turn away from the useless things, turn away from the things of old, and turn to my face. Be zealous and repent. So the question, the question we're all left, is what does this mean for me? What does this mean for my life, and how do I apply this? How do I live this out? We see 20 and 21 come, that Jesus is knocking at the door. What would it look like for us to welcome Jesus in? You're going to have to look at your own heart and your own life on the onset of a new year. What would it look like for you to welcome Jesus in? To leave no door unclosed, to leave a closet that Jesus can't get in there, but to allow him open reign to work in your lives, to work his grace, work his love, work his mercy in the areas that feel broken, lost, and helpless. So as we speak about it, about to be a new year, next time that we meet on a Sunday will be 2022. And I don't know about y'all, but I am helpless when it comes to New Year's resolutions. That I don't think I've ever made it past January 7th for something that I actually resolved to do. Man, if it's working out, I'm not doing sit-ups and push-ups anymore come January 8th. That it's all going to be pushed to the wayside. So whenever we think about making resolutions, making life changes, why would we resolve to do anything less than to welcome Jesus in and to put the cornerstone first in our lives? Because here's the truth. Nothing else truly matters. Nothing else truly will have the eternal implications and transform everything in our lives like Jesus can and Jesus will. So what does it look like to welcome him in? Welcome him in? To just abide in his presence, that you would accept that transformative presence and being in his word, spending time with God, just giving thanks to him and worshiping him, wouldn't it be something we do just on Sundays? Wouldn't it just be something that we do occasionally on a Bible study during the middle of the week or just whenever we get around time to, five minutes in the morning, the devotional, why not abide in his presence deeply? Come to him, just say, God, you and I in this time, you can fill me up with your goodness, with your love, with your mercy, that you can make me a new creation because here's what I want, God. I want to go out with the old, out with the self-sufficiency, out with the pride that holds me captive more oftentimes than not and step in to the new thing that you're wanting to do in our lives. Step in to the life and the transformation and the beauty and the goodness that only comes from knowing Jesus as your Lord and your Savior. And this is the hard one. This is the one that we get caught up on. To walk out from here 
to keep his commandments, to obey him, to follow him. So who in here has heard of the five love languages before? Popular book, maybe you've taken a quiz before that you know your love language, that you, you like to receive gifts, or maybe yours, I'm about to lose my microphone. Maybe yours is receiving gifts. Maybe yours is words of affirmation from others. Did you know that God has a love language? He does. If we look in John 14, verse 15, we see this. This is the words of Jesus. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. So obey, love God, and love your neighbor. And here's the thing, those two can't be separated. That to love and welcome Jesus cannot be separated is synonymous with loving your neighbor and welcoming your neighbor. And we look around, God has been faithful this past year to our church. Amen? He's been faithful. He's been good to us. Yet there's still heartaches that plague our families. Heartaches and valleys that beset our families. That we look around our community. There's been loved ones sick, battling for their lives in the hospital. There's been loved ones that we've lost this past year. There's been jobs lost. There's been so many things that we look back upon look like they just have wrecked our lives, left a path of destruction like a tornado. But here's the deal. Praying for these people and staying committed to praying for these people is crucial. It's important. But with that coming hand in hand is being the people that God has called us to be to love our neighbor. That we could look and ask how we can be hot to other people. That this warmth and this comfort that we were talking about, how we can step into another's life and bring warmth and comfort. That we could come as a church family, as a community, as a faith family to ask, hey, is there anything I can provide to just help you? Do you need anything? Physical needs, can I help you? We look, ask, how can we be cold to other people that we see how can we bring God's restoration, God's peace, and God's refreshment? That we're that vessel that God wants to use. So in a world that's normally irritated and aggravated and get out of my way, get out of my face, how can we come near to people to love people and to be the one who shows them what God's love is truly like, what God's love is actually like, what it looks like to be patient, to be kind, to be compassionate, to take their burdens upon yourself because they are your family. People are in need. People are in hurting. In season, out of season, be hot and be cold. May we have ears to hear what God is telling each one of us this morning as he speaks to our hearts, as he brings to light challenges and convictions and encouragements. May we be doers of his word as we seek to honor Christ, seek to please Christ and live in that fellowship and also horizontally love others and love our neighbor. Resolve to let Jesus in. Out with the old and in with the new. Out with the old of your life, the things of yesteryear, that those things can be made new and be transformed because God's doing a new work. God's doing a new thing.
and we're excited to see it. Let's pray this morning. Father, we bow before you humbly. God, just thanking you that you are our God, that there's this offer on the table that we can abide and live deeply in a relationship with Christ, that you can fill us with new life, that it sounds so supernatural, sounds so high up in the air, God, but this is real, this is tangible, and this is life-giving. This is the very life that you want to breathe in us, God, that as we read that we won't be tempted to become lukewarm and to be polluted and tainted by the world around us, by what the world clamors after and the world prioritizes, God, that may we take your presence and yourself upon us to be more like you, to love as you did, to reach out to the broken and the hurting and bring restoration, bring warmth, and bring comfort. God, as we continue to revel in this and anchor ourselves in your hope, God, we thank you for this Christmas season that we're coming out of, that we celebrate a baby born to us that this isn't ordinary, any ordinary baby, Lord, that we celebrate the birth of Christ that changed everything, that there was something behind the scenes, behind the curtain taking place, that a cosmic victory was being won, that the forces of darkness and the darkness was being pushed out and your glorious light was coming and dawning in our lives. God, we thank you for that good news. We thank you for that truth, God. And just help us in the steps. As we walk in that truth every single day, God, that we walk ever so closely to you and see how that has boots on the ground, practical applications in our day-to-day life of how we love on others, God, and how we stay rooted in you. God, we love you. God, we praise you. God, we thank you that you've been faithful through this past year in our church, in our families, and in this community and beyond. God, we love you. God, we praise you. It's in Christ's holy and precious name that we pray and ask all of these things. Amen.